0: We are in a unique position as Americans because our forefathers, the ones who established the independence of this nation, understood that the success of the nation, they they understood that the future and the sustainability was intricately tied with faith. And so in our founding documents, whether it's personal notes and letters or whether it's in the actual constitution, the ability to live free and to experience and to express faith is guaranteed. And so as we enter into this weekend, yes there is of course all the secular sides of a, of a holiday and a and a season in which we remember the 247th birthday of our country, but we go into that also knowing uniquely as a Christian church. We played a role historically. We play a role now and We are expected to play a role in the future as well. So it's not a commonplace or a complacent scenario or opportunity to celebrate this weekend. It is intricately tied with who we are and where God has called us, where God has placed us because just like Queen Esther, he has put us here and he has put us here in this time and we embrace That responsibility. And so we've had the opportunity under Pastor Josh's leadership this morning to pray and to think and to reflect on some of that and and see the beautiful images that remind us of all that we love. And we go to Scripture to give us guidance. And we're going to a historic scripture that is a couple millenniums old. And in that, in that not a couple millenniums, a couple several hundred years old. And we go to that scripture because the nature of scripture being inspired means that it is applicable and it is a solid foundation of guidance for us in this generation. So it's maybe a little bit more difficult to get to, so it's in 2 Chronicles. Many are familiar with the verse. We're going to look at chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 14, a very popular verse. We're going to look at it in its context and we're going to understand how God is telling us to pray. So one of the great things about Scripture is we have sample prayers throughout all of Scripture. We have the words of people who prayed and people who preached and people who taught so that we can know how to pray. We have multiple examples throughout Scripture that tells us not only to pray, but very specifically how to pray. We even have the words of Jesus telling the disciples, this is how you should pray. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, the historical context is inseparable to the one verse. Because what has transpired in that first section of Second Chronicles is the events and circumstances of Solomon's reign over Israel. So Solomon is the head over Israel under God's leadership, and he has been doing the things that God had placed on his heart to do. Many projects beyond description, and we don't have the time to go into all that. It's contained in Second Chronicles because Second Chronicles is a historical account of that period of history. But it's not just a history book. It's not like you're just looking at a document or an essay regarding the history of Israel at this point. It is historical literature inspired divinely by God, it is His Word. And so, in that context, it applies to us today. We may not be in the same situation Solomon was in. Solomon has just completed numerous civic projects. Primary in those civic projects was his own palace. He built a huge palace for himself. And then he picked up what was actually his father's vision, what was King David's vision, and decided to build a place For God, because David had come to the conclusion that he shouldn't live in such regal standards and God be ignored. Solomon adapted that vision and it became his vision, and he has just completed building the temple, a house, a place for God to physically dwell. The dedication has taken place, everything has has happened, and and God shows up and indwells the temple, and and everything's just as Solomon dreamed, just as God had inspired. And then in this indiscriminate period of time that we don't know, God revisits Solomon with the vision in chapter 7. There's just one little verse that transitions and says, "After Solomon had done everything that was on his heart, after he had built the palace, after he had built the temple, God visited him in the night." And that's where Second Chronicles, chapter seven, verse 14, falls in, because it's in the midst of that vision where God is giving descriptions on how the land will prosper, how the people will sustain and prosper. That God gives a very pointed statement about how the people should pray, and that's where we pick it up. So we're in Second Chronicles, chapter seven, verse fourteen. If you're looking on your Bible app, you can always switch translations. Um, and we always teach out of Christian Standard Bible. It's the most accurate, most solid translation available today. So we always teach out a Christian standard. You can change your app to that so you can see the exact same words we're looking at as well. Many of you have memorized this verse because it's popular. Many have seen this verse on posters. Many have seen this in advertisements. I can't tell you how many prayer meetings I have been to of every level, every structure, every type, every group of people that has used this as a theme verse. But here's the thing about popularity is sometimes we get so focused on what's popular, we miss some of the key elements. And that's what we're just going to take a few minutes this morning to look at some of the key elements of this instruction God gives to Solomon and ultimately gives to us because it's his inspiration on how we are to pray for our land, how we are to pray for the place we work how we are to pray for our families as we have during the service, how we are to pray for conditions and circumstances and culture, even if it doesn't align with us. This is our response. So the vision comes, wakes Solomon up, and he's giving these instructions. And in verse 13, there's a very poignant statement that God makes. If I shut the sky and there is no rain, Or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land. Or if I send pestilence on my people. This is the conditional clause of the instructions God is about to give regarding the prayer. And it's absolutely essential because what it describes for us from God's perspective is our necessity of having an accurate assessment of the circumstances, of the times, Everything is described with metaphors that are by their very nature, their very character, natural disasters. We understand what drought's like. We are experiencing something to that effect right now. We understand what Those types of invasions, if we've not experienced it ourselves, we've experienced it through the context of movies and and television and books and history and and, and the the issues of the past of this pestilence that overwhelms and consumes the land. We understand that we live in a a generation that just refreshed our minds on what it's like to be in a place that is, is just overwhelmed by disease and peril. We understand all this. We've experienced this. But for the most part, we've experienced it and we qualify it and we interpret it from a natural perspective. We're, we're used to doing this all the time. We turn on the television because we want to see what the temperatures are like this week. We want to see, is it going to be good Tuesday? Is it, you know, do I want to barbecue Tuesday? Do I want to go swimming Tuesday? Do I, you know, what do I want to do? What does our family want to do? Rarely, I would say, do we stop and pause for a minute and ask ourselves, what does this mean at a higher level? God's not describing natural disasters, He is describing judgment. This is not a meteorological assessment, this is not a climate assessment. This is not a scientifically analyzed assessment. The accurate assessment here is there will be a time when God's people so deviate from God's plan that he will have nothing left in his options but to respond with disaster that is by no stretch of the imagination natural, but it is in fact supernatural because it is his judgment We're not talking about prepping for the end of time in this verse. We're talking about the end of time as we understand it coming because the hearts of the people, the creation on this land is so far gone that God feels no choice but to discipline in a significant way and get our attention. I mean, one of the saddest parts of the Bible is in Genesis chapter six. The Bible starts off, Genesis chapter one. I mean, it's just a beautiful picture. God's creating everything. He's putting everything in place. He's creating us. Everything's just absolutely wonderful. By the time we get to chapter three, those forefathers of who we are in creation our great, 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 however many generations you want to count back to Adam and Eve, have sinned and rebelled against God and all the beauty of chapter one and two is now gone. The world becomes an inhospitable, judged place. You didn't sweat yesterday when you were working in your yard because it's hot. You sweat yesterday because sin has ruined the climate. By the way, if you wanna send a note to Washington, it wasn't your gas stove that did it. It is our sin. This is a cursed land. And God describes that to Solomon. And so we need an accurate assessment. We can't pray unless we actually understand what's happening. And the accurate assessment is God has said, I will shut the sky. I will command the grasshopper, the locust, to devour. I will send pestilence. God is an amazing God of love and grace and mercy, but He's also an accurate and holy, more than willing God to send judgment if correction is what we need. We have to be accurate about it. The reason we have to be accurate about it is let's be let's be honest, this is true of every single one of us. I know it's true. We have an amazing ability to live in denial. We have an an amazing ability to come up with other explanations for the simple explanation, my heart's not right. So I can come up with all kinds of other ways to describe what's taking place and what's happening without addressing the condition of my heart. It needs to be accurate. We need to be accurate and we need to understand that God's judgment is present because of sin. It is the pitiful state of things three chapters after Genesis 3 and when we sin, when God comes to the conclusion that he regrets creation. I mean, he says that. I am sorry that I made all of this. And he feels like he has no choice but to give a clean sweep and a clean wipe. And after 40 days of naught an El Nino, La Nina, or whatever it is, but of 40 days of intentional rain as judgment, the entire earth, except for the inhabitants of the ark, are removed, cleansed, judged. And God counts on that remnant to be able to accurately understand what they've done in order to make the future Again, something you might want to look forward to. You can't deny it. You, you just can't live with this delusional sense of denying all the time. Oh no, I don't have any responsibility. I haven't done anything. I mean, it is, it is the proverbial situation of the kid and you walk in and there's chocolate all the way up to the elbows and there's chocolate all over the face and you, and you look at him and say, who did this? What's wrong here? And you can start to get any number of excuses. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Even animals have the capacity to do this. My family likes to laugh because um, that's one of the way I've always disciplined our dogs and even our cats when they make a mess or do something I'm not happy with. I walk in the room and I go, who did this? And even the dog looks at the cat or the cat looks at the dog. <laughs> I mean, the kids are already gone. They're hiding behind the couch. Who did this? Well, guess what? The really bad news this morning is we did. The really good news is there is actually a remedy for it. And part of that is we just have to take responsibility. Look at verse 14. God has said he sends judgment and his expectation is that his people who bear his name are the ones who are the responsible party. The closest thing to maybe... The in just always present ability to deny reality and deny responsibility is to transfer or to project responsibility. If God looked at our nation right now, if he looked at Western culture today and all the just bizarre and unusual and strange things that are taking place, and if God was wanted to, which he could if he wanted to, said, who did this? I'd say, already in your mind, because it just happened to me, so I'm, I feel confident I'm not the only one, we just came up with a list of people. Oh, uh, well, God, <laughs> this group did this. Oh, this is because these people and the church—we're we're really no better. We can come up with any number of reasons to blame someone else. I mean, how many of us even struggled as we as we walk through the the points that Josh had created for us and shared with us this morning to think about and to pray for? people that we're mad at because we think it's their responsibility. I remember one year for National Day of Prayer, I was asked to pray for media. And I'll just be honest, here's my own projection. You know, I pretty well blame media for just about everything. I mean, am not talking just the news as bad and horrible and inaccurate as they are, but everybody, everybody who ever thought it was gonna be nice and sweet to project an image and an idea that everything perverted and twisted should somehow be normal. And that you should enjoy this because that's where real freedom is. You can't tell that to the 30% of those populations that are committing suicide this year. That, oh, you're, this is freedom. No, but we've, we've, we've built it that way. So I, I have my own little pet peeves. I have my own little groups I want, I want to blame. Yeah, that's it. yeah, if God said to me today, James, who did this? I've got my list. I can name them. I can name them by name if I wanted to. But in verse 14, God says, if my people who are, NIV translates as called, CSB is a little bit more accurate in that it's bear my name. Recognizable people of God. If we, we're the responsible party. We can't expect somebody who doesn't even know God to have some sense of correct morals or correct righteousness or even correct wisdom. The first thing Solomon did, if you go all the way back to chapter one in 2nd Chronicles, the first thing he did was admit, this job, being king, it's bigger than me. I'm going to need wisdom. When was the last time you heard that in an inaugural address? Because they've already got the agenda set before they get there. And God's opinion isn't the top priority. But see how easy it is to project? I just did it. It's their fault. It's not their fault. It's our fault. We're the responsible party. If my people who bear, who, who, who have my image, who demonstrate my presence in this world, if they will make the course, <clears throat> if they will make the course correction. And what is the course correction? In the second part of verse 14, that they would humble themselves, that they would pray, They would seek his face and they would turn from their evil ways. It's our responsibility to make the course correction. It's it's you. It's me. It's our children. We're the ones. We're the ones that need to step into this instruction from God where he says, this is what happens. I am judging you. You're clearly outside of my will. You're clearly outside of my intention and it's not going to be a good experience. And so I am bringing discipline in order to help motivate you, in order to help guide you the way all proper discipline is administrated. I'm gonna bring discipline. You're going to accept responsibility because you are my people and then I'm going to ask you to humble yourself. I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to seek my face. I'm going to ask you to turn from our evil ways. I'm going to ask you to repent. And that's all repentance is. It's not a big, horrible, meaningless word. It actually is common sense. We do it all the time. It's that simple U-turn in life. When I recognize I am headed the wrong way, and the only way out of it, the only way I can extra guide myself out of this, the only way I can get to the right direction is to stop, pause, recognize it, and turn back around. But it's our responsibility. It's the churches. I dare say many of those prayer meetings, and I, when I say I've been in lots of these, I mean lots. I'm talking hundreds of these, and sometimes and many times in leadership roles. And I've heard so many Christians pray, if only the president would repent. I agree with that sentiment. If only this star, if only this celebrity would repent. And I agree with that sentiment. Because it's so much easier to wonder when they're going to repent than to stop and say, when am I going to repent? I have my evil ways. I have my wrong decisions. I have my wrong directions. I have my disregard for God's will. He wants His people to change. He wants His people to humble themselves. He wants His people to pray. He wants His people to seek His face, to just literally come back and look at Him in His face because it's in His face you find His love. Look in His eyes. Hear him say, I deeply, significantly love you and care for you. And I want you back in my presence. So I'm asking you to turn, not because I'm going to deny you of something that's fulfilling. I want you to turn because I am all that's fulfilling and meaningful. Let God take us and cradle our face in his hands and hold us and gaze upon his countenance because his strategy to this recovery is real simple. He'll hear from heaven. He'll forgive our sin and he will heal our land. It's always been about his love. And it's always been about his desire to know us. And so regardless of any decision any one of us has ever made that is contrary to the character and the nature and the personality, the holiness of God, he just wants us back. I've run and I've run and I've run and he just keeps waiting and he just keeps looking and he just keeps inviting. And even his groups, Even his systems and organizations within a group of people, we keep running, and he just wants us back. He just wants to look at us and say, "I love you." I'm not missing self-worth because you're confused. You're not missing security because you don't have enough money. You're you're not missing hope. Because you don't see a way out. You're missing because you don't know him. And you stop and you humble yourself and you pray and you seek his face and you're willing to turn and he hears and he forgives and he heals. The very last part of verse 15 says, My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer from this place. Frustrates my daughter to no end. I get tired and I get exhausted and one of the ways we relax most of the time is to watch the Astros. Not so much last night, maybe better this afternoon. I get thinking about everything and I kind of just zone off into my own world and then I'll hear her voice say to me, Dad, you're not listening to me. And the honest truth is, she's right. I'm thinking about other things and other, other things that need to be done. There's any number of things. Sometimes I'm just not even thinking. I'm just, just out. No one ever in the history of the world has ever looked God in the face and said, you're not listening and be right. We may have done it he's always been listening sometimes we just don't recognize it that's why he's God that's why we trust him he promises this is his promise my eyes will be open and my ear is attentive to the prayer from this place anything you want to tell him today right now in this moment about ourselves about our country He will listen. God keeps his promises. If he didn't, it wouldn't be worth knowing him. And I would be the first to never challenge you to have faith. But I find no testimony in scripture that gives me any other conclusion than he keeps his promise. And for the years I have been a believer in Christ, I have never had any other experience other than he keeps his promises. I'm the promise breaker. He's the promise keeper. And he promises to hear us. Always. But especially right now. Father, we're turning to you. We look to you. I am strongly suspicious. I am not the only one in this room that just simply needs to know you love me as I am. And you love me enough to not leave me as I am. That your plans are exactly as they're described in Scripture. Those are plans with hope, plans of a future, and plans for good things. Those are plans where you desire to heal and recover. So, here are our prayers. Respond to our prayers. Forgive us and heal us. And through healing us, heal the land we love so much this weekend. More than anything else, I affirm for myself and others who are praying along with me, I believe in Jesus. I believe you will and have and will continue to forgive my sin. I believe you hear this prayer And I have believed you have prepared a new nation and a new place for me that is my home. And I wait every day for my Savior to come back for me. And you will. You are coming back. And you will take me to be with you. My declaration, my prayer, believing that you're watching right now, that you're hearing right now, that you're forgiving right now and that you're healing right now by the power of the name of Jesus.